Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is Putting the Science in Science Fiction, where fiction and science collide. What's up, Sci-Fiers? Welcome back to another week of Putting the Science in Science Fiction. You have your host, Matt Medney and John Connolly here. Ben's taking the week off. But today we're going to start with some new news in science. John, right before we got on, you were telling me there's some exciting new news out in the world. Why don't you let our listeners know? Yes. I. Uh, good evening, everybody. And I'd be happy to announce that we have an update regarding Project Dragonfly, which for those who don't know, will be a nuclear-powered quadcopter that we will be sending to Saturn what? that will land. What? That was to land in 2034. However, I'm happy to announce that NASA has decided to change the launch vehicle for Dragonfly uh, based on its mass and what they want to achieve. And they are now um, upgrading it to go and fly on one of the heavy lift craft. Now, for those um, out there, there are different classifications of launch vehicles you know, based on payload. And we have various variety of classifications. There are medium-sized ones, which is what we typically think of for the Falcon 9 or for the Atlas V. Um, however, uh, also at the launch date of when they want to use an Atlas V, which would be the only medium-class lift vehicle that could do the job, um, they're actually going to be unavailable in 2027. So they are looking for a heavy lift vehicle. However, the only heavy lift vehicle right now is the Falcon Heavy, which they actually aren't building anymore of. So that's going to be interesting to see whether it'll be uh, presumably you know, a SpaceX Starship or it will be a Vulcan, which is the upgrade that's the successor to the Atlas V that's being built by... What Blue Origin trying to make? The new Glenn. That's that's the, the successor Glenn. to, yeah. So the new Shepard is what they've been testing, and that's the one that's going to do the launch later this year. Uh, but the new Glenn is their heavy lift craft, and so yeah, we're not sure which one of those it's going to be on, but it's going to shave two years off of the travel time to Saturn. Wow. Which, so yeah. So for for and another thing in twenty twenty seven is the space hotel orbiting Earth apparently right. That's, that's what we saw on the news uh, the last time we checked, which, as you and I both discussed, we'll see it when we believe it. That is a bold, <laughs> bold claim. I want it to be true. Ooh, that uh, two, two things before we get away from the topic. One, just in sustaining that everything, you know, for, for a reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So because we are able to shave two years off of the journey to Saturn, we are coming hot to Titan. And the crew stage of Dragonfly is going to have to have significantly more propellant to decelerate, which means that now, as of just a couple of weeks ago, NASA makes the decision, we're going with a heavy lift. It's awesome. We can shave two years off. Oh, now we have to completely redesign this portion of the spacecraft because we have to carry so much more fuel to slow down. So there's, there's always something, but that's part of the fun of the challenge. 
And on the subject of ambitious plans, I just wanted to make note of uh, what I told you last week when I saw at work. Uh, for the audience, I passed by this poster at work, which was done by NASA, and it was huge. It had to be three feet tall and six feet wide. Oh my God, the had... poster you sent me. Yeah. Oh, it's the coolest. So... Oh, stuff. The coolest stuff ever. Wow. I, I'm rusty. <laughs> oh, man. No, right, you were, ex we you were excited. That type of language here. I apologize. You won't know. You were excited I, because of how good it was. You won't know because Mike will bleep it, and then you'll hear this rambling, and you'll realize what I said, and it'll all be for naught. But with all that being said, John, that poster was incredible. Can you explain a little bit more as to what exactly we were looking at? And then in the description of this episode, we will take the image you sent me and put it on a communal Dropbox so everybody can see it because it is the coolest map ever. So why don't you talk about it? So... In this giant poster, it is this timeline that starts in 2050 and goes to 2200. And based on all the information on it, it was a series of timelines, each relating to the Earth, various Earth orbits, the moon, all the different planets, so different destinations that were going. And each has its own time bar going across, and it's passing all of these years ticked off. And looking at the information on it, this was made in 2000 because it has all of the actual NASA missions that happened up to this point. But then afterwards it plots out NASA's plan or vision for humanity for the next 200 years in every detail of all the missions between all the different planets as we're setting up supply lines and building colonies. And let me just tell you, it is ambitious. So we have a lunar base established in 2011. We have a human landing on Mars by 2018. We are building a space elevator by 2065. Hold on, space elevator? That sounds like something out of a book I've read recently. <laughs> Which book would that be, sir? It would be Beyond Kuiper, The Galactic Star Alliance, plug. And you were very keen on writing this space elevator piece for Isaac. Um, Bernard's son, and when you when you were you know pretty adamant about doing it, when I was like I don't know what this is, you you really like researched it and put it in. I didn't realize that that was like a real thing. So you know maybe oh, yeah. maybe you want to educate me and our listeners as to what a space elevator actually is, because I think for some of us they might picture an elevator to the clouds, which is ironically not what it is. So. Why don't you let us know what that means? Okay, so the concept of a space elevator begins with the idea of geosynchronous orbit. And that means, you know, at in low Earth orbit, a satellite goes around the Earth in 90 minutes, goes 17,500 miles per hour. Further away you go from Earth, the slower satellites' orbits are, rel sorry, the slower satellites' uh, RPMs are relative to the Earth. And so when you get all the way out to 24,500 miles away from the Earth, a satellite orbits the Earth at the exact same rate that the Earth turns. It takes 24 hours. And so we like to position satellites around the in this equatorial orbit, um, a geosynchronous orbit, so they can stay over the same spot in Earth and monitor it. Uh, it's useful for communications, it's useful for surveillance. Uh, so the concept of a space elevator is that we would 
tow an asteroid into orbit around Earth and place it at geosynchronous orbit. And then we would attach a structure, a tensile structure, presumably made out of some sort of carbon nanotube technology that we're able to replicate at thousands of miles of distance and we're able to build huge quantities of. And you tether that asteroid to a spot on the Earth at the equator. So this means that you would need a spot either in South America or Africa, probably Africa, based on uh, plate tectonics in a lot of cases. Uh, but the, the idea is simple. Instead of needing launch vehicles to literally thrust a spacecraft into orbit, you have now an elevator. An elevator that by the time it gets all the way out to geosynchronous orbit, you, know, you then literally step off of this asteroid and you're already in an orbit around the Earth. The energy needed to lift significant infrastructure out of orbit, or say off the surface of the Earth, is reduced by huge factors. It would be a tremendous leap in technology. And, and but I also think it's probably one of the, uh, what does it say? Like a convergent technology that a lot of intelligent species would have if they were on a planet, that eventually they, they would come to this point. So I think that's a great lead-in. Now, mind you, if, if all of you guys listening are like me, we half got that, but we'll revisit it later. I want to get into today's main topic, which is what if alien invasions like the movies actually happened? What's total nonsense, what's possible, and what's problematic? With all of the new dragon and space elevators and space hotels, we're going to make a compoundingly powers of 10 more impact in space and radio transmissions over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Eventually, if there's life out there, someone might realize we're playing around. Let's say they do. And let's say, let's take Let's take Independence Day, which might be the greatest alien invasion movie of all time. What's realistic? What's problematic? And what's just fun movie? I'll let you go first. Do you need a refresher on the movie or do you remember it? Oh, oh no. It, it, it's tough. Well, one, because I love Jeff Goldblum. And just... I mean, Jeff Goldblum, just for our listeners, Jeff Goldblum can do no wrong. He was playing a character. His cigar was incredible. Moving on. Um, anyway, I mean, it's ridiculous. If that alien invasion, if that alien species had that level of technology to build city-sized ships that could float over the surface of the Earth, then the fact that even without shields, that their spacecraft you know, would, would be beaten by the bullets and missiles of an F-18 in 1995, 1996. Um, there's just no way. As well as the fact that an alien race, I think no matter how arrogant it might have been as them, would have made massive contingencies and plans of coming all the way across interstellar space and, and having such vulnerability or the fact that like that they didn't leave other ships behind you know that every single ship was destroyed especially like you know all the 
that they were the humans were able to uh, have a counterattack of that magnitude and coordination against. I mean, it, it's a ridiculous movie. I love it. It's a great film. Um, but after the initial kill, you know, the initial killing of millions and millions of people in the first blow and like taking out all that infrastructure, I do not think that humans would have had the organization to do that. Nor do I think that humans would have left, would have let those ships enter the atmosphere. I think there would have been nukes in the air. Someone would have. If if all of a sudden there is, you know, the perception of it. Because at the same time too, I think like, you know, there's enough, we've seen enough of our own perceptions in in media that if we really saw anything that we remotely thought looked like aliens arriving in an invasion, we would be acting fast and proactively. And, and there's just so much that's caught off guard. So, so there, you, there's a lot there for me to unpack. So let, let, let me start with the front end. Would it be safe to say that in every example that we go through in this hour, that there is a level of disbelief we will have to suspend because if an alien civilization came to earth, it, it, would you say 0% chance that we could defeat them if they decided that they wanted to overtake us? Is is that just like common sense no. science that if they have the technology to get here, that they would just, that we would just be subservient in nature to that? I, I don't think so because. So give me an example. I, I, well, where... well, here, here's, here's a question. If, here's a question. Do we want to spoil the three body problem real quick? Sure. Okay, so well, just in that, or I'll just say I'll just I'll just emphasize with that. You know, if you have another civilization that is a near in a, a relatively nearby star has sublight technology and was, you know, maybe a couple hundred years of time ahead of us, say even five hundred, but you know that they were just able to start crossing interstellar space, unless they took a lot of infrastructure, astounding amounts to be able to sustain their army they would be fighting against the defense of an entire planet. And I mean, we have, at this point, a lot of weapons. And I don't know how good our rail guns are, but, uh, you know, also too, I don't know if, if aliens came across all of space, if they really would be willing to glass our planet, you know, in the sort of covenant way in Halo where they're just, you know, Interesting. All of you need to be just sort of, well, because the value, the value of a habitable world. We don't know the value of a habitable world. We think that's valuable, but it, but it might not be. No, we, we no, no, we, we don't. Humans don't. Humans, based on their actions, clearly don't think that the planet is valuable. Well, well, but I mean, I mean, from the cosmic <laughs> perspective, we, we we have no we have no real sense of knowing whether or not we are an anomaly or if we are the normal. That's just a fact. So for all we know, true at this point, at this know, point, there's no data. Yeah, there's no data to, to, to confirm that. But but uh, going back to your point, and then I, I want to get to the second part of what you were saying. I don't know if I agree that if an alien civilization had some sort of fusion, cold fusion, fission drive, warp drive, whatever iteration of uh, uh, tricking space time into letting them go far fast that they wouldn't also have some sort of plasma repeater that would just make all of our weaponry seem like child's play. And it would it would be kind of like a, a, a kid shooting their dad with a low-powered BB gun. It's cute, 
but they can't really do anything about it. I think it would kind of it would be very attritiony. Like if if we if we take that's what I'm saying. At, but okay, but I where I'm saying I guess I'm giving it a, a glimmer of chance that in sheer attrition by resources and numbers that and and defense position. Wouldn't, wouldn't an alien was, spaceship? Wouldn't an alien spaceship need a, a some sort of shield to get through the debris of space? Some sort of shield uh, around yeah, there. If you're, if you're, if you're, well, or or you physically, literally have a shield that you send thousands of miles ahead of the ship in space, a physical one that's taking every, you know, as you're near light speed, some micro meteorite or some, honestly, an atom, or or, a, or that's floating around. Um, yeah, th- those things matter when you're going that fast. And yes, you would need some kind of shielding, whether that's the, the shields we think of in Star Trek or a physical shield. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm actually surprised that you give humans any hope in that situation. It, 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 it's interesting because I, I just don't think there would be. But that brings me to my second point. Is there any chance of a human decoding alien tech in a seven minute period no right so as much as we love mr goldblum (laughs) that is unrealistic correct i mean remember one of my favorite parts of arrival which is a fantastic film that i think does really i think they do it right right i think they do it right uh the scene where amy adams is explaining to the general in the beginning where he's he's i'm paraphrasing here but he's saying essentially why is this difficult? And she's looking at him as if he has five heads, being like, and uh, she draws out on this board, you know, beginning with the idea of how do you, we convey by associate, words convey the relationships between objects and, and how we perceive that. You know, first you have to break through the idea of, you know, this is me describing an object this is what a question is. This is, you know, this is what a subject is. This is the all the entire idea of like how we just fundamentally communicate. You're trying to convey that with no commonality other than, as you said, just kind of like going slowly brute force. I think it took them, didn't the movie didn't take them months before they finally got you know, any sort of mean, any sort of meaningful action with that and there was also too in that in that scenario that was not the earth acting cohesively that was all these different languages independently trying which probably is a good idea i mean honestly you might as well try what about what about light. contact let, 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 let's parlay over to in my opinion the greatest alien uh contact movie ever contact and how they use math as the universal okay. language is that a reality? I, I think that it is. I, I, I think that, as I said before with the space elevator, I, I think that there are convergent ideas in math and in physics that may and maybe not. You know, there's I think that of all the species that exist in the cosmos, most perceive the universe far differently than us. However, there probably are some that do perceive it as a carbon based life form you know, able to see certain portions of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, that we would 
eventually, well, that we would eventually break through with, or if they were sufficiently intelligent that they were observing our Earth for a long time, and you know, we're able to record our transmissions and study them, that by the time they got to Earth, they would probably know our language. It would be able to communicate with us. And, and in that regard, that's sort of where I put contact. Whoa. So you would say if an alien invasion was coming this way, they would likely be able to speak our language before they got here. Maybe not that they could physically, like them actually speak it. But yes, I think that they would understand our communication. They would, they would be able to, yeah, they would be able to understand communication in, in some version of whatever, be it yeah. writing, visual, sign. Do you think sign language would be what they would learn? Mm. That's probably the most universal language. No, well, we different, well d different countries have their own versions. There's many different versions of sign language. I mean, it does, it does hold. Is that is ideal? <laughs> uh, only if they can see in like the waves of the spectrum that we see. If not, mm -hmm. then again, I think it's almost, it's almost shooting in the dark, right? They could be a completely visually based, auditorily based, or what if, what if they were smell-based, you know, chemical interactions were how they communicated as well as even if they could read our language and, you know, and speak it or be able to communicate with it via computer and decode it. I don't, there's absolutely no assurance and probably no chance that they would understand the emotional nuance uh, or just understand our emotions. You know, those are, that would be a lot that, that would be asking, that would be asking a lot mathematically to be like, Oh, you, you feel me. <laughs> So I, I want to I want to put a I want to put a pin in that for a second though I do have a couple of questions there and, and and go to what I think is a really interesting depiction of an invasion and I want to know your thoughts on it which is War mm. of the Worlds which one just the the, the actual story the yeah book. the actual story right not not yeah. from a movie fam I mean the Tom Cruise yeah. movie Issue is a succinct telling of the story but like. From the point of view that these aliens came to Earth and then got defeated because the biology was able to get on them, right? Like, talk through if that's realistic or if they would have had their own safeguards before coming to Earth. I think they absolutely would have had their own safeguards. I, I think Ex that... Expand more. Because, be, because if you were a species sufficiently technologically capable of leaving your own world... Or say that even, I mean, if you were biologically capable of leaving your own world on your own, probably not. But I mean, we're, we've talked about various species that maybe we could have that capability living in gas giants. But if we're, if we're going to talk about humans or, or something similar to them, or the, even that the creatures, the Martians in War of the Worlds, no, I, I think it's ludicrous that they would not have taken those precautions. So, so... That is, in your opinion, a a movie arc plot hole in a sense. That that's not a reality. No, I think that Ishi Wells is being incredibly poetic in the idea. I that, do. It is. It is poetic. Yeah, and so in it's it's a story about hubris in a way. You know, there's this 
superior species that's come and it's absolutely squashing the humans but in the end it's this thing that they so small that wasn't the humans that they didn't anticipate you know the enemy that they didn't see was what defeated them so it, right. it's almost, unlikely it's unlikely yeah it, it takes on a certain let's operatic feel <laughs> i agree i have a question let's go if back. i could jump in for a second oh go for it so yeah <laughs> so like you guys said the biology is what got them in war of the worlds but since they're supposed to be like super smart and stuff would they come to like take signs for example would they come to a planet where it's 70 percent water and water is what takes them out well it wasn't water it was it was you know it was microbes it was germs germs that sure but, yeah. but i think i think mike i think the i don't think they would have right i think hg wells wrote that as john was say, ooh, as john was saying to be poetic rather than scientific and matt to your and your to your point i think when you said you know humans are just assuming that earth is the the world that everyone's looking for um and you know hg wells i think makes that assumption as well you know, here's the species on this other planet they want our world you know theirs is dead ours is lush but i'm like eh, that's you know what if they come from a world that's completely different in the same way we talked about you know the difference between carbon and silicon based life forms based on our understanding of the theory of, of what would form silicon based life forms it would have to be a planet that was hundreds of degrees hotter much higher concentrations of sulfur and would have oceans of sulfuric acid and that would be that would be the liquid cycle and it would have this silicon sulfur hydrogen cycle for its metabolism and that life form would want nothing to do with earth earth to them would be a frozen ice ball and that planet to us would be a burning hell that's a that's an interesting storyline just to play with for a second imagine a story about two species on two different worlds that um for whatever reason needed to combine forces but neither could stand on the other planet yeah, that they could they could communicate and know each other, but they could never, they were never gonna merge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like fun fundamental. Or there could be like so something fundamental. Maybe, maybe there's a um, maybe there's a, a a common cosmic threat. So you have two factions, one from each planet, on a on a dual ship that can sustain both species, and they defeat this common threat. But then the, the, we focus in on, uh, on two of them that fall in love. And then you follow that, that story that they can't, they either have to live in space together, but they can never be together on a planet. I think that that is a, that's a tragic, not even a tragic, it like threads just north of tragedy. It's a beautiful romance. <laughs> just like gave, gave up both their worlds. And yeah, that's it, kind it, of fun. Yeah, it's like what Romeo and Juliet could be in a future space time. Yeah, I like it. Let, <laughs> let, let, let we'll, we'll, we'll write it. You heard it here first on Fun Science Science Fiction. But no one's let's it. go back to Independence Day because oh, okay. something that I and you you briefly talked about it, but I just want to dive deeper is the concept of lead and our uh, projectiles. Is there 
a reality where our guns and bombs and other things would just be inert against a certain type of metal spaceship, maybe some sort of magnetic sphere around a spaceship. Is there any reality where, you know, we send the fighter pilots against this invasion and all these things like you see in, in Independence Day, but it, it just like, it would be like, a, you know, an ant has no quarrel with a boot. Yeah, Amy, uh, just, th- you know, throwing pebbles against a wall. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think that material science is one of the most rapidly expanding fields and one that really has almost been a bottleneck in a lot of our scientific concepts for a while. For example, just briefly talking about, there's many fusion concepts that have existed since the 50s and 60s, but there was always this, you know, the math was there. Physics-wise, we can do this. The material science is not. And, and now with, uh, you know, the ability to not only create new types of alloys, new types of ceramics, new types of, you know, heat ablative material, you know, the, the, the tiles on the space shuttle, what we use for uh, all of our different heat shields, the materials that are being used in supersonic and hypersonic jets and weaponry, uh, you know, ones that are going to go through the atmosphere at above Mach 6, you need to have parts that can't melt. And, and that's pushing the edges of, of technology here as well as, you know, now, and, and on top of all that, we're learning how we can 3D print all these materials, which, which is, you know, taking different, you know, up until now, before the advent of 3D printing, we were limited in a lot of the ways that we could build because we were using primarily a lathe and a milling machine. Well, one of our good friends just started at the bleeding edge of 3D printing, right? Relativity space is is at the, uh, the, the precipice. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to 3D printing. Uh, I mean, I know a little bit, but... What what are your thoughts, you know, as being a professional in the aerospace industry, is what relativity doing, you know, showmanship, or is that the future of how everything's going to work? Oh, it's the future. Oh, no. So, so, so uh, dive a little deeper into that. Uh, 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 preach, preach young Padawan. If you can 3D print rockets... And entire subsystems directly, just building them right into the structure, building as you go, you know, taking what was hundreds, if not thousands of different independent components that you would have to assemble, you know, removing welding processes, removing machining processes, removing all these different places where flaws could occur. And you could, what you will save in cost is astronomical and i mean it's going to take a while they're obviously going to have to test this to the nth degree but it could streamline not okay streamline it means that we would no longer be subject to a lot of the rules of how we traditionally make spacecraft for example a module like one of the ones the test ones the donatello uh raphael uh the ones that were named after the uh the Ninja Turtles that NASA used, they would put it inside of the space shuttle bay. It was a temp- it was sort of, it was a, um, a transport 
module that would be in the mm-hmm. bay of the space shuttle and then they would attach it to the ISS and it would have cargo in it and then they would take it back to Earth. They take that and it's an entire block of aluminum, spun frame, or, or um, not spun frame is the word, I'm botching it, but they think of it an entire you know, 12 or 14 foot diameter piece of aluminum that they are now machining out slowly at the center until you get it down to sleep the however many hundredths of an inch thick that it is you know instead of doing things like that if you can just print it and i'm sure that printing will allow us to become more unique and more aerodynamic and more mass effective and better structurally Uh, what i really want to know is when they could be able to 3d print serious you know, radiation blocking materials. Although to that point, I mean, that was part of why we wrote, had written into Kuiper. It's actually the hydrogen rich polymer or just you know, paraffin as an example. Um, but hydrogen atoms are really good at blocking, new, especially neutron radiation. And uh, if you used, you know, polymers and 3D printed uh, hydro type hydrocarbons, uh, you could build very effect. You could build structures that were also doubly acting as good radiation blocking, whereas aluminum is not. The thin piece is aluminum. I mean, to a degree, but not as good. Wild. And and are you thinking that it's a foregone conclusion that we would three D print habitats across when we terraform? Right. We would send a a, a Falcon Heavy or equivalent with a bunch of massive three D printers on them. And then they would basically just start building habitats on exoplanets. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think it. I mean that. I, I, it I makes feel like that's sense, like, right? It does. You know. You know what's always interesting is, and I don't know if it's just because I've been having all Star Trek talk today, but I just feel like we haven't had like a feel-good future science fiction story in a while. Like, why isn't there just a story about like the evolution? You mean you know, just just showing the future, but having it be, you know, act, yeah. not the love death robots dystopia in some in some way. No, or or, or I mean, yeah, like uh, you know, like like what if like five hundred years from now we pass through a couple of great filters, no aliens try to kill us, there's no biomes that had to save our planet, and we're just terraforming worlds. Oh, I mean, I. I... I want it to be that. I mean, I guess probably why we don't see it as much. But there hasn't been a story that you've come across that's just like fun. Like there is no evil to it. Yeah, but I mean, evil is part of a is a compelling part of storytelling. So I I could kind of understand in Eh, one point why no one's. It's a it's a it's it's a tool. I mean, there is no you know. I don't know. I think it'd be cool. Why don't you just why don't you just do a story of exploration? Oh, I mean, like it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to have any sort of like dark, weird points to it. Or or just, you know, why can't you have any one of the different types of stories that happen in our world, just set them hundreds of years in the future, but just have it show where we are and, and what happened or what happens. So, so, so here's my question to you. What's to say that we'd even register on a alien's radar as being sentient right the age-old question if we don't consider a lion or an animal sentient and we eat them 
what's to say that the creature that's able to travel the cosmos doesn't think we are their lions? Very good point. I had a conversation very recently about this, about consciousness. And the reality is, from, from where we stand right now, we don't even have a way of proving that each other are conscious. So yes, I, I don't, there's no guarantee that an alien race would regard us as being sentient. I would think that, no, you can say, because you could still, I mean, I, you could argue that you could still become some sort of technologically advanced society that was capable of sending electromagnetic, you know, photonic signals, but you still weren't conscious, or maybe you just did it or, you know, as a organic process to you, but you still weren't conscious. So, uh, you know, I, I guess we could, you could say that there were sort of technological benchmarks, but, but those are still metrics that we're applying to ourselves. I mean, we've talked about this, you know, what if when we get to Europa, we find out that there's been a civilization of sentient European whales that have existed for a billion years, you know, never technologically advanced. Most likely. Still, still sentient. I mean, in the same way, how, you know, are you going to eat it? Elephants. No, I'm not. Um, I mean, no, Absolutely not. An alien animal. If I if I crash landed on an alien planet and I was starving, and I had to kill an alien animal, uh, probably not because it sounds still like a terrible idea. I, I would have no idea what eating that animal would do, how my body would react to a completely foreign food source. That that does not yeah, sound are, good. <laughs> are you familiar with? Uh what if on yes. youtube yes they just did a recent episode on what would happen to your body if you ate an alien animal and how did it go it's not pretty it's not pretty Ooh, it's not pretty it's just probably like it's probably your <laughs> dna melting at some point <laughs> yeah they were like they're like there's so many uh biomes and and bacterias that your body would have no idea what to do with and it would potentially melt your insides yeah Oof. my favorite from that one was what if the moon was replaced by electrons <laughs> that was wild i saw that one yeah and wasn't it like that... it collapsed into a black into a singularity so large that it swallowed the galaxy it was something insane it, it, it was like it was like tear, it would tear it would tear the fabric of space-time horribly in some in some impossible way so, so one more topic I want to talk about today, and it doesn't really have a lot to do with the arrival of aliens, but with the function. So I sent you a video a few weeks ago from PBS on the idea of time as a consequence of gravity. So if you remember, it was the idea that the causation of gravity created time. Oh, you don't. Do you watch the videos I send you? I didn't watch that one. You hear this, Mike? You hear this, Mike? I spend time researching and making 
observations and things, and I send them to John, and he doesn't watch them. I was, and now, I was in the middle of writing Beyond Kuiper. What, what do you want? You, you get one or the other. Excuse, excuse, excuse. So, oh. so, so it's does time cause gravity? Is the name of the video. I just sent it to you again. We can talk about it next time. But the idea but that... It, make, it makes sense. It makes sense that, that time is a causation of gravity. Yeah, in explaining how time dilation is occurring at significant gravitational points. And you kind of, you kind of calculate backwards from there. All right, we'll have to talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody that, that wants to watch this video... We'll put it in the link, but it is on PBS Space Time on YouTube. Came out about three months ago, and it's called Does Time Cause Gravity? If you watch it and it's interesting, leave a comment on Apple's podcasts. Leave a comment on Heavy Metal. We'll find it. But I found it to be one of the most interesting videos I've seen in a long time. Uh, I'm sure Mike is Googling it right now and will watch it right when we're done, if he's not watching it right now. Um, so, so, so going back to alien invasions right before we wrap up for today, you said arrival is your favorite, which I would concur with. And I think we haven't even talked well, about no, it, but we can. No, it's not my, it's, it's not my favorite. Well, okay. It's, I guess it's different. Con contact. I feel like for getting the alien signal, all that plays out. I think for arrival, for the aliens actually being there that one is is the most accurate and then, and then we can all agree that the worst one ever is mars attacks Oof. That, that's got to be at the bottom right we're just not gonna talk about that um mars attacks isn't a you're not taking that one seriously though come on now. <laughs> hey hey if it uses aliens i take it seriously well, how? <laughs> he, well, here's here's actually what I wanted. I wanted to bring this up before we wrap up. Um, you know, if aliens did arrive, one thing I want to talk about is let's say that they June fifteenth, they are coming. Well, let's say they were not attacking us. Just that they did simply arrive. What would our reaction be? And so, in arrival, they had all the aliens behind the globe. It would be well, no, I, th some, I think some doofus with an arrow would start a war. Nah, because I think that they, I think that they would, if they, to that point, if they did bother to come across all that distance, and let's assume that they probably did have significant technological superiority to be able to do so. Someone fires an arrow, they can probably shrug off a nuke, you know. But they, but they don't have to. All they have to do is show that they can disarm five nukes flying at them, and humans are be like, okay, we're not going to. We're gonna pause for a second. I mean, the the thing is, I think a lot of it would have to do with how the aliens play it. In that, you know, we are still a a world that is a bunch of nations, and you know, in Arrival, that was, uh, you know, there was the twelve ships that were all over the planet and all these different sites. So they're interacting with all these different groups of people. In Contact, you know, there was a multinational. Uh, effort to build the device, the machine, to send her through the wormhole. Uh, I mean, if the aliens showed up as just one ship coming down to Earth, I think where they land it is going to play so much into what happens next. And so in that respect, I think 
the day the earth stood still, the aliens showing up at the United Nations saying, hi, I'm here to talk to all the leaders together. From our understanding, this is how your thing is set up. And then everything goes sideways. But if they had just let him walk in, who knows what might have happened. Um, I think it would be very smart for the aliens to either show up, go go to everybody, or even still from space say, hi, we're here. We'd like to meet. We'd like all of you to figure out where we'd like to meet so we don't have anybody freak out and don't have anybody think that they're getting preference. Uh, the geopolitics really are, are, are very interesting there. And then, of course, you know, it's what happens next? What did they want? You know, are they here because they want to live on Earth? Are they here to bring just... us to your leader? Yeah, or, or are they just here to make their presence known? I mean, if it's just to make your presence known, cool. I guess, you know, we, we then at that point, we're probably trying secretly to delve every piece of information out of them as possible because we want to get the technological gains that we can. Um, but, you know, they, you know, I hope that we're not dumb enough to try to do some sort of force thing where it's like, oh, you have to stay now. It's like, no, I, 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 I treat them pretty much as godlike beings that can do whatever the fuck they want and if they want to come say hi that's nice if they want to stay i mean god if you if you made it all the way across the void and you just and you wanted to play nice and you just wanted a place to stay let them in like who but but then but then where do they go i'm 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 a hundred percent on your same wavelength but i think it's a wildly optimistic wavelength I think I think as a species, we are um, laughably scared of what we don't know rather than curious. And because we're scared, we act in impulse rather than with reason. And I just don't think it ends the way you, you're saying. I think we throw some nukes. I think they disarm them. I think we throw some more nukes and they get pissed. And then that's the end of humanity. Whoosh. Well, but, but okay, that's the thing too. I mean, I guess you know we talked about we talked about we would be the if you really if you really if you really well well if you really wanted to be if you really wanted to do it, I guess you would probably be this is okay. This is how I would do it. If I was an alien invading species that was even I'll say coming in at sublight, we you know what it probably doesn't even matter. Let's say they eventually see us, but they probably don't. They decelerate into the solar system send ships, dispatch ships as they're moving, deorbiting sunward, um, you know, drop them off at the moons of Uranus on Triton, on Saturn, still send some out to drop on Io and Europa and, and Ganymede and Callisto, have them drop on Mars. And by the time that they're somewhere, probably even as far away as Mars, you just send a bunch of near light speed or stealth, you know, just extremely high velocity rounds that are carrying some sort of neurotoxin or not neurotoxin, but some sort of bioweapon that is going to be able to survive impact. I'm not sure. I mean, not sure how your technology is going to do there, but yeah. So by the time you arrive, they're just dead and they didn't fire a bunch of nukes, possibly ruining the plan in the process. You didn't have to do any sort of messy war. You just sit in the sky, wait for them to die, go down, 
wipe out the mess of the rest. Well, after you have to do heavy... So house is back. Essentially. But this is the point, too. You would definitely have to do heavy bio-research to know if you were going to occupy that planet, what you would need... What would you have to worry about? You know, are you... Are you trying to live in Earth's atmosphere and you're going to try to adapt to what all of our diseases are? Or, you know, are you going to put the Earth under some sort of partial terraforming that's going to just wipe away every indigenous species? But, I mean, that's that's a tremendous... I mean, again, I mean, that's such a tremendous effort to do that. I would argue if you were capable of terraforming a planet, why would you bother coming across the stars from your own to terraform another Unless you were an invading army that in this is you expanding, which maybe that is, those are the million dollar questions and they will be for next time on putting the science, science fiction. Thanks so much guys for listening to this, to John and I ramble about aliens. Hope it was fun. Uh, we'll do this one again. There's so many more movies that we can talk about and so many more ways that we can, deviate but until next time stay curious keep looking up and always use science good night believe in science read love you all read